This thing is on display. It's on public display for 1,200 years. It is believed by most of the people looking at it that it is magical, that it has powers. Yeah. Now, how much power does a human being have? Are, are we just meat or are we spirit? Is, is there mind over matter? Can, can the mind change matter? Can, it, can the mind have an effect on matter? If a million people looked at an object and thought it had magic, would that give it magic? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is March 11th, 2006. Our guest this week, Jerry E. Smith, part two of two. We're picking it up where we left off last week with Secrets of the Holy Lance. Uh, In part one of two, we discussed the lance, where it came from, the history of the lance, the legend of the lance and the various holders of the lance leading up to where we start off today with Adolf Hitler. So go back and check part one of two for the Passion, Charlemagne, Constantine, Queen Bodicea, and all the various factions and folks that have held on to the spear up until it got into the grasp of one Adolf Hitler, which is where we start this week. And where we go this week is with Adolf Hitler. He has the spear, how he got the spear, what he did with it when he got it, Heinrich Himmler and his bizarre obsession with the spear, what happened to the spear post-World War II, the various rumors, is the spear in Austria the real spear, did the spear get sent to Antarctica, we talk about Nazi Antarctic bases, we talk about Admiral Byrd and Operation High Jump, we talk about... Rumors of Nazis escaping to Antarctica and Argentina. And we talk about the rumors of Adolf Hitler and whether or not he faked his own death. From there, we wrap up the discussion on Secrets of the Holy Lance with some existential questions. As you heard the teaser at the beginning, sort of like, uh, what powers the spear, and irregardless of whether it was actually at the Passion. We discuss that sort of thing, some existential Uh, ponderings on the spear. And in the final half hour, we discuss Jerry's childhood friend, Jim Keith, who's uh, very well known in the esoteric community. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, Jerry knew him from high school all the way up to his death, so this is a rare glimpse at the life and times of Jim Keith that is really priceless for anybody who's a student of esoterica and the various folks who've made serious contributions to the field. Here's a little bit about Jerry E. Smith. For those of you who are unfamiliar with him, check out part one of two for his in-depth bio that he gave us. and He discusses where he came from and all that great stuff. So if you want to learn more about Jerry E. Smith, obviously check out part one of two for his bio that came straight from him. But here's a little bit about him. 
Jerry E. Smith has been a writer, editor, and activist for over three decades. In 1991, he and Jim Keith founded the National UFO Museum, New Farm, in Reno, Nevada. From 1991 to 1994, Jerry was the executive director of New Farm, while Jim Keith acted as the chairman of the board. In addition to his administrative duties of running the day-to-day operations of New Farm, Jerry also edited and wrote for that organization's quarterly journal, Notes from the Hangar. At the same time, Jerry worked as an editor and graphic artist for Jim Keith's magazine, Dharma Combat, the magazine of spirituality, reality, and other conspiracies. Jerry served variously as managing editor and art director for from Dharma Combat's inception in 1998 until Jim's untimely death in 1999. Today, Jerry lives and continues to write in Reno, Nevada. His websites are jerrysmith.com and secretsoftheholylance.com. Let me spell those out for you. It's j-e-r-r-y-e smith.com and www.secretsoftheholylance.com or you can just go to spearbook.com s-p-e-a-r-b-o-o-k.com for all the information about Secrets of the Holy Lance. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll here. This interview was recorded on February 12th, 2006. Jerry E. Smith, Part 2 of 2 on Banal of America Audio. Okay, so Hitler ascends to power in Germany and goes and takes the spear. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So uh, he sort of does what Napoleon wanted to do. Exactly. He was the first non-royal to possess it in 1,200 years. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, why don't you tell the story about how he gets it, because uh, like the actual presentation to him of it, because it sounds like it was quite, an, uh, quite a big deal at the time. Yeah, there are there are a number of conflicting stories as to what happened and when. Uh, some say that he went straight to to the spear. Others that uh, it, it took him a couple days. What we believe happened was that uh, the, the the soldiers rolled into Austria, and while while they did that, he sent some um, some SS ahead to make certain that the spear was safe and that nothing wrong happened to it. He then went to uh, his his hometown uh, of Lentz, where uh, where his mother had died, and went to his mother's grave and spent spent at least one day and and two nights in Lentz before going on to Vienna. And there are two different stories about how he got the spear. Uh, one story says that he went directly to to the spear. Uh, 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 to the, the the museum and uh, went into the museum and was alone with the spear for an hour. We don't think that's what happened. The, we we have a, a, a what we got was that there was a uh, a gala banquet held uh, in his honor. Uh, you know, a typical state banquet at the uh, at the royal palace, and during the the, the, the dinner. A uh, certain Colonel Book arrives with uh, with the spear in its uh, velvet case and presents it. And apparently, the, the the story goes that that uh, the, the uh, Colonel Book and his SF men come in and line up against the wall, and and everybody stops and lo- and looks at what the hell is going on here, yeah. and. Um, 
clicks his his heels. It must have sounded like a like a rifle shot going off in the in the banquet hall, and announces the holy here is the holy lands. And Hitler gets up, comes to him, and Boop takes it out of the box and dubs him like a knight with it. At which point, uh, it, it, uh, supposedly Hitler kept it for an hour or so and then ordered it sent back to the museum. Uh, in the next few days, a special rail, uh, a special train, an armored train took the entire Reich treasure back to Nuremberg. Now, what we gathered, what we've been able to piece together is that he kept it for about eight months. Yeah. And, um, uh, the the whole the whole of the Brits the whole Blitzkrieg period of the war when he when he rolled into Poland and rolled into Belgium and rolled into France that was the the the, uh, the period where he had the spear yeah and then um, then he uh, uh, decided that it that and and then and then it's an interesting as to what really happened to it at that point um, the we we have to we have to bring in Himmler yeah. If if anything, Himmler was was as freaked out about the spear as, as Hitler, if not more so. Before the war in 1935, Himmler had had a uh, a replica of the spear made. He had found uh, a castle uh, called Wiebelsburg, and he had redone the castle as a homage to the spear. Every room in the castle was appointed with uh, stuff from the time of various, uh, you know, each room was dedicated to a particular possessor of the spear and was decorated with stuff that guy had had. So the Henry the Fowler room has got Henry the Fowler stuff in it. The, yeah. uh, the, 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 the Charlemagne room has got Charlemagne stuff in it. So it's like a veritable Holy Lance Museum. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Himmler created... Himmler was was uh, was a neo pagan, uh, a straight ahead pagan. He was he was trying to bring back uh, 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 Sparta. He he really wanted to bring back Sparta. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and you may recall Sparta was a communist military dictatorship of homosexuals. Huh. Uh, little little odd place. And uh, 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 Himmler. Himmler was an uh, absolute uh, believer in uh, in in, uh, in Aryan folk tales. Uh, that uh, the, in total believer in the in the in the in the whole Aryan race and the and the Teutonic Knights and all and and the, and the Holy Grail and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he created a, a circle of of Holy Grail spear of destiny knights called the Knights Grand Circle. And conducted weird black magic using his replica of the spear until the onslaught. Yeah. Uh, when uh, apparently he he uh, he had a uh, uh, he brought the greatest swords maker from Japan to Wiebelsburg and had them make an exact duplicate of the spear. And it's the duplicate that went on display at Nuremberg. And the real one stayed at his crazy castle to do 
bizarre black magic. Now, did he, did Hitler, obviously Hitler was probably out of the loop on this switcheroo, correct? Uh, what who he, knows? You don't who know. knows? Um, um, Hitler, Hitler seems to have surrendered the spear to, to back, he, you know, he, he stopped using it. Yeah. Now, do you think that ties into how Hitler sort of, uh, it seems at some point in his reign of terror, Hitler sort of uh, turned his back on his occult leanings. Um, do you think that did it occur around that time, you think? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, um, what we know about uh, the, the occult in the, in the Third Reich is is not from original sources. You know, we we know basically it's it's all hearsay, and it's hearsay compounded on hearsay on hearsay on hearsay. Yeah. Uh, very little of those who were in the occult bureau of the SS survived, and very and very little of what they said survived. So there's a there's an awful lot of you know very good research done on this. Uh, but what we can see is not what happened during the war, but what led up to the war. Yeah. Uh, and we can see there was a, a, the, the inner circle of the Nazi party, uh, about half were intense neo-pagan occult freaks, and the other half were, were you know, uh, uh, mil militarists and futurists. Yeah. So they didn't have like the same shared interests type of thing. No, it was it was it must have been a very strange place. I'm sorry, to have been in the inner to have been in the inner circle must have been really truly awesomely weird. Yeah, and and Hitler, so he sort of he has a spear for eight months, and that's when he's he's going through Europe. He's cutting through like a swath, and then exactly. And again, you know, you use the spear in battle, you are invincible. And then uh, and then he he passes the spear to. Um, to his his pagan pope, who does weird stuff with it. Now maybe the real spear really did go to Nuremberg and, and end up being recovered and going back to Vienna, or maybe it didn't. Uh, the again, Doctor Feather's work unearths a spear that is uh, a Carolingian spear. It's not a Roman spear. Uh, what what uh. uh the, the folks who who put forward the story that 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 the spear did not go to Vienna say that the the swords maker was instructed to use Carolingian technology to use Carolingian materials intentionally so that if they ever attempted to um, to do testing of it they would they would they would say that it was Charlemagne's hoax yeah. So this is very interesting because this was said almost 20 years before the actual scientific testing was done. So they they had they it wasn't like they did the testing and they said oh well see that's because this was when they do the testing they're going to find and that's what they found. Exactly. That was I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, reversal of how it usually goes. Yeah, exactly. So like it had been rumored for a long time that that might have been possible, and then in some ways the testing almost could have confirmed that that uh, idea or right. credence to that to that uh, rumor. Right, and of course this this basically comes down to comes from a story which is probably a hoax. Uh, this is there was there was um, uh, an American 
college professor who taught medicine, and he was a, a medical doctor. And during World War II, he had been a, uh, a medic and was one of the, the first people into Dachau prison. And there was a rather bit of nastiness at Dachau prison that most Americans aren't aware of uh, called the Dachau Massacre. When the Americans liberated the Dachau prison, the first thing they did is they rounded up all the, you know, all the Germans surrendered to them and they put them in a, in, a, in a spot. And then they went and looked around in the prison and discovered the, the horrible conditions there. And the U.S. soldiers freaked out. They went and shot every one of the Germans. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, this uh, this did, did not sit well with uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Buchner, and uh, uh, many years later, uh, uh, Buchner wrote a book uh, about the, the Dachau massacre uh, as, from an eyewitness standpoint. Shortly after his book was published, a a person comes to him and says that he is a he was a submariner with the German submarine fleet during World War II and that he was part of the Fuhrer convoy, the last three ships, that, uh, the last three or more submarines that took escaping Nazis, including Martin Bormann, from, uh, from, uh, uh, from Germany uh, as it was surrendering. And they had on board the Holy Lance, and they took the Holy Lance to Antarctica, and further, this, this sailor claims that he has proof that in, that in 1979, the Holy Lands was rescued from Antarctica. Exactly, which is where your book picks up and uh, at the beginning it ends it. And that is really one of the most fascinating parts of the book because I uh, have a long time interest in this, uh, what is called Station 211. Uh, which would be the Nazi, uh, the purported Nazi base at Antarctica. Righto, righto. So, so this, this, uh, this, this sailor has uh, the log of the Hartman expedition and a signed, handwritten letter of authenticity from Colonel Hartman stating that this is true and some photographs of some of the things that they found that, that they brought back from Antarctica. Now the story goes that in 1945, as the Reich is falling apart, Hitler personally po pulls aside Colonel Hartman and tells him, I got some stuff I don't want anybody to get. You are in charge of making it go away and stay away. And he Hitler gives materials, gives things to, to Hartman, which includes uh, like you know, things like his scout badges, you know, uh, the, you know personal memorabilia things, his, his favorite uh, little painting and, yeah. and, and his favorite belt buckle, you know, some odds and ends, you know, crazy things. Yeah, yeah. And, and at, by the time Hartman has, uh, has acquired all this stuff and made it to, to the port of Kiel, uh, Hitler is supposedly already dead in the bunker, and included with the stuff is the ashes of Ava and Hitler. And uh, Colonel Colonel Buchmann's uh, uh, books, uh, Colonel Buchmann gets uh, writes wrote two books about this: uh, Hitler's Ashes, Seeds of a Fourth Reich, and Adolf Hitler's and the Secrets of the Holy Lands. Uh, 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 these books are based on this guy. This sailor has come to him with the with the uh, 
with the Hartman expedition and says not only did Hartman take, not only did Hartman arrange to have these eight bronze boxes of stuff put on a sub and the sub go to Antarctica and stash it, but in, uh, in 1978, uh, Rudolf Hess, who was in charge of building Station 211 and sent him, sent, sent, uh, was in, uh, uh, he stashed in 211, uh, Har uh, Hess, who's the last, uh, last prisoner in Spandau Prison, is um, uh, taken out of the prison for uh, a couple of days for, uh, I think it was an ulcer. Uh, he's, given, he's taken to a hospital, and while he's in the hospital, he manages to get a message out. And the message tells um, Hartman that he has to reconvene. He has to close the circle. He has to reconvene the circle of the of the of the of the knights of the of the knights grand circle that uh, that Himmler had started. He has to bring back into existence the the the, 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 the order of the holy of the holy knights uh, the, the knights of the holy lands. And you can't do that unless you have the holy lands. Yeah. So he has to he, he's uh, he's he has to go down to Antarctica and get it. Oh man. So in 1979, uh, he's now, uh, you know, uh, uh, an aging businessman, and all the other knights are aging businessmen, and he pulls together um, an expedition and goes down to Antarctica in 1979, goes to where they stashed it, and it's beyond them to get all eight boxes. They can only get four boxes. They bring four boxes back. And uh, and this uh, this sailor says that he was part of the Hartman expedition. He was he, so he he took the lance to Antarctica in '45, and he helped to recover it in '79. And because uh, Buchner has written this book uh, about the Dachau massacre, it shows that he's a good man, and that and that he can be trusted by the, by the German people with this knowledge. So he then gives him. You know, the, the log to the Hartman expedition and these photographs and yada yada, which uh, uh, he and Buchner uh, write, uh, write the first book, uh, Hitler's Ashes, but the, the sailor dies while they're writing the book. Uh, uh, Buchner did quite a bit of research to try and establish whether or not this was a total hoax or, or the truth. And he contacted most of the people who claimed to be part of the Hartman expedition. He contacted uh, a number uh, of people who were part of the of the Fuhrer convoy that was at least three subs. Uh, uh, and the, the, there was a lot of cooperating evidence. I mean, the, the two of the three subs surrendered months after the war's end. The war ended in June, or the, you know, the, the uh, uh, Nazi Germany surrendered in June, and one of the subs surrenders in July, and another one in August, uh, to, uh, at, at both at Mar del Plata, the closest Argentine naval base to Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, and their, uh, their stories, the, the stories of the of the captains of where they've been and why it took them a couple of months to get around to surrendering don't make any sense. They don't hold water. The, the, both the captains are held uh, by by uh, by the U.S. and the Brits for a year and a half, and the, 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 the eventually the Brits let them go because they they figure that they can't get any more out of them. Um, uh, when the ships surrendered, there were some very odd things. One ship. One, uh, now these are the super submarines. They're the size of aircraft carriers. Oh wow! They, they were not made as war machines. They were made as they're underwater cargo ships. Yeah. 
they were made uh, initially to to uh, supply the submarine fleet. Um, by by building these underwater cargo ships, they could get they could get stuff out of the, the Baltic Sea where they were being built and to to the the Atlantic Ocean and re, resupply the U-boats. At the at war's end, they changed their mission and they they became part of the Northern Rat Line, which was how the how the Nazis escaped. The Southern Rat Line was through uh, the the Vatican and Spain, and the Northern Rat Line was uh, through Norway and the and the subs. And uh, 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 it's pretty clear that Martin Borman was was on one of those ships. Um, uh, oddly enough, Borman, uh, one of the ships that surrenders, is 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 packed with cigarettes and brandy, and submariners don't smoke or drink on duty, and it was Martin Borman's brand of cigarettes and brandy. The other ship had 76,000 pairs of shoelaces. Oh, wow. That's strange. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, that, so, so, Buchner concluded that it was a true story, that, that, that there really had been uh, 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 a, uh, an effort to, to hide in Antarctica Hitler's special things. Now, what we do in the book, Secrets of the Holy Lands, is we kind of springboard off of that. Yeah. Because there are all, all these urban legends about Station 211 and New Schwabenland and the, the Nazi attempt to, to put a colony in Antarctica. And so we, uh, we, we build on the, on the Buchner scenario by, by, by giving all, the, all that we know about it, which is quite a bit, oddly enough. Yeah, you guys have a lot of information in the book about that. Uh, about the Nazi base uh, and at, and at, uh, at Antarctica. Um, tell me a little bit about that. How did that come about, do you think, and how extensive do you think it really was, and how do you think it really turned out to be but that's where a lot of Nazis went after the war, and it's, is it still there, you think, or tell me about that. Well, what we know is that in 1938, there was a German uh, Antarctic expedition that uh, uh, claimed about a fifth of the continent as a German colony, uh, as a as German property. Yeah. Uh, they took something like eleven thousand photographs. They they dropped hundreds of Nazi uh, uh, flags and uh, um, rods with a with a metal top with the with the logo of the of the uh, of the expedition and uh, uh, you know claiming a statement that. They were claiming it for for, for their country. Yes. So um, uh, we know that the Nazis did, in fact, claim a big piece of Antarctica as as uh, as a German as German territory. Uh, there have been literally from day one, literally from 1940 on, stories of of an attempt for 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 the Nazis to actually occupy their territory, and most of the stories. Say that the uh, that the effort was called Station 211, or codename Station 211, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's almost impossible to get any hard facts on this one way or the other. The the rumors, particularly the the internet rumors, particularly the the Russian press, is, is just wacky stuff. Yes. 
the uh, uh, apparently uh, you, you, you remember during the, the Cold War days that the, the great Russian newspaper was was Pravda. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, Pravda is Russian for truth. Uh, apparently, Pravda has become like the National Enquirer of Russia these days. Sure seems it, yeah. And and uh, they have been running wild stories about uh, not only you know the Germans called it New Schwabenland, where um, at the same time, literally like three days later, the the or three days earlier, the the Norwegians had claimed the same property, calling it Groning or Queen Maudland. Now, the the uh, the. The, the Soviets, or the, you know, Pravda is claiming that the capital of New Schwabenland is called New Berlin, and that there are between two and three million inhabitants there right now. Wow. And, and not only that, but that it has the city, it goes stretches for hundreds of miles through tunnels, through, through the ice and the mountains, and, and, and they have many, you know, they, we, we have, we have found something like 170 lakes under the ice now. And so there is this claim that, that, that these lakes are not just under the ice, they're like resorts. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the New Berlin has an alien quarter where, where uh, 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 peoples from other worlds hang out. Yeah, and it sort of ties into the whole, uh, I don't want to say hollow earth, but like uh, underground earth tunnel aspect of uh, this, the esoteric research, would you say? Right. That was a, another aspect of, of the book, is that Himmler, who was, Himmler wasn't just crazy for the Holy Lands, he was crazy for all of, uh, 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 you know, he really was trying to find the, 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 uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the, the Indiana Jones stories are based in fact, I and mean, they really were looking for it. Yeah. Uh, and they were also looking for Atlantis and and Shambhala or Shambhala. Yeah. Um, the, 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 they were trying to find the entrance into the Hollow Earth, uh, and I, you know, they, there, there probably is no such thing, but it, it's. It's a piece of of, um, of human consciousness that uh, that keeps popping up, you know. That uh, people keep telling stories about it, um, uh, and and there are so many weird connections to all this. Um, uh, the one is the is the animal bird connection. Uh, bird uh, had been invited to join the uh, the 1938 uh, German expedition, and for unknown reasons, decided not to. And then in 1946-47, he leads the largest expedition ever mounted to Antarctica. And this was this was no scientific expedition. It was purely military. It was a U.S. Navy show run by the U.S. Navy, and it was their first Antarctic mission in a hundred years since Wilkes had explored the place. Uh, and this uh, this expedition is. Uh, 4,700 men, an aircraft carrier, two destroyers, a submarine, uh, a couple of, uh, several dozen aircraft, both fixed wing and rotary. This was a major military expedition. And this is, uh, that's Operation High Jump, right? That's Operation High Jump. Yeah, and that's very well known uh, in some circles in esoterica. I definitely, if you, if you want to know more about Operation High Jump, check out this book, because this book gave a lot of great information, because I've always been looking for more, and you guys just provided a ton of stuff. Yeah. 
uh, uh, that was that was a, a fun piece of research. Uh, I I wrote the Antarctica stuff, and I wrote the the ancient history stuff, and uh, George wrote the the uh, uh, the crucifixion and the immediate aftermath of the crucifixion, uh, Joseph Arimathea and Queen Boadicea, and he wrote all the Nazi stuff. So so I spent all my all my time researching either. Roman politics or Station 211. Nice, nice. And, and, and so Operation High Jump, it kind of never really got off the ground once they got to Antarctica, and the rumors are that they actually engaged in battle with Nazis. Obviously, that's not what came out in, in the uh, press reports and the mainstream historical accounts, but there's always been that tinge to it that perhaps that what really was going on was some kind of battle between Nazis and, and the U.S. expedition there, which is what high, Operation High Jump was. Exactly. Uh, high Jump was, was outfitted with all this stuff, and they had enough provisions to be there for eight months. Now, uh, the, 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 the Antarctic summer is up is a little over three months long. You know, you know, the the good the good weather they could maybe have squeezed six months out of it. They were actually there for I think it was sixteen weeks. Yeah. Uh and they left abruptly. I mean one day one day Burgess said, Okay, we're pulling the plug. We're 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 leaving in an hour. Everybody pack your bags. You know, it was like it was like, what? <laughs> and there was never any explanation for it. It was just a sudden okay, we're going now. Uh, uh, it's still, to this day, nobody has a clue why. Yeah, it's very mysterious. And, and, and Bert has a sort of weird tie-in to Antarctica altogether. Not only what you said about how he was invited to the original uh, Nazi or German expedition to Antarctica, but then later on, what, at, was this after high jump that he had the diary and the okay. flight into the middle of Earth and all that crazy okay. stuff? Okay, it is literally crazy stuff. What it is, is... Bird had a son, and sometime I think in the 1960s, uh, uh, Bird's son started uh, 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 came up with this diary of his father, in, in which it was claimed that Bird had flown 600 miles into the Hollow Earth and met the King of the Hollow Earth and had dinner with him and yeah. long conversations and yada yada. Well. Bird's son was stone crazy and, and just made this thing up. But it's gotten a lot of, um, of circulation. You know, a lot of people think it's real. But there's no real credence to the Bird Diary. Uh, did, if you, have you read it? <laughs> uh, you can actually get it on the Internet. You can actually read the whole darn thing on the Internet. And it is just crazy. It's really bad science fiction. Yeah, I've read, I've read pieces of it. Yeah. Do you think maybe that was, uh, just to throw this out there, sort of like uh, like a theory, maybe that that the uh, the diary was sort of like a cloaked story, that there was something to investigate at the uh, Antarctica, but it wasn't, you know, but they had to cloak it almost in such uh, bizarre terms. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you, uh, you take... Uh, the the military are very well known for for disinformation programs in which they will take a, a truth and, and and to hide the truth they will add layers of nonsense on top of it uh, and and uh, uh, people will stop looking at the truth the, the, the classic is is Paul Benowitz and the Dolphy based stories yeah uh, Paul uh, there was a uh, um, uh, uh, an advanced aircraft program that 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 he was seeing, 
and uh, they got him to look the other way by 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 feeding him all this dulcy-based nonsense. Now, obviously, since '79, that's obviously technology's advanced and uh, expeditions probably have advanced. Has there been any sort of sightings of uh, Station 211 or any like more recent, other than the Providence stuff? Uh, anything coming out from the science community or esoteric science community that uh, has any more information on Station 211 that might that might shed light on it, like you know, on a hatch somewhere or like a cool picture? Um, I, I I I hate to say this, but no. Uh, but I think I figured out why, and that is the the um, the the the, uh, the probable site seems to be in the. Um, uh, Hoffman Mulig mountain range, and that is an ice-free area. Most people don't don't realize that there, that two percent of Antarctica is ice-free. Uh, there's lots of geothermal in that area. Uh, there is um, um, there is life there, um, and uh, it's quite possible. I mean, it, people live in Antarctica now. There are there are full-time residents in Antarctica, yeah. uh, mostly at uh, at McMurdo Station and at the uh, South Pole Station. But there there are people who live there year-round. Uh, I'm I'm actually thinking about joining them. Yeah. I, I'd like to open a bar in McMurdo. I understand there are three bars in McMurdo now. If there are three, there's probably room for a fourth. Yeah. Uh, McMurdo now has over a thousand buildings. Uh, it's it's a big place. Yeah. Uh, the the winter population is down, is around four thousand. The uh, the summer population is uh, about fifteen to twenty thousand scientists, and 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 uh, between twenty and forty thousand tourists. Oh wow! Yeah, it's and tourism is booming there. Um, uh, the, the, the tourism is so big, uh, the Argentines are building a Las Vegas-style resort on an Antarctic island. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And uh, how, how far away is that from where Station 211 will be? Well, um, on the opposite side of the continent. Oh, wow. Uh, the dead opposite side of the continent. Uh, the, the, um, the, um, uh, the area in the Mulig... Hoffman Mountain Range that could be where 211 is. This area is now a, a, a is now sequestered. It is a protected zone. Uh, the uh, the Antarctic Conservation Act of 1978, a U.S. government law, has created that area as a um, a specially protected zone uh, because it is a. Uh, a, a breeding site. It's a, it's a nesting grounds for a couple of different kinds of birds, huh. and and it's now um, uh, a no no humans allowed location. Oh really? Yeah. So um, so uh, the, if there, if Station Two Eleven really is somewhere in Antarctica, this would be the best way to keep the world from finding out about it. Exactly. Now, did the Hartman Expedition, did they go there before or after it was protected? It was called protected. Um, they, uh, they went there after. The, the, uh, it was protected in 78 and they went there in 79. Oh, okay. All right. And there was, uh, there is a, um, um, uh, a Norwegian base at the protected site. Um, called uh, Station Tor, T-O-R. Yeah. Uh, the, it, Tor is 
it, it, it may be just to watch the birds breed, or it may be to 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 um, to map mine and figure out what they can find in 211. Exactly. Yeah. Now, can you like, uh, let's say I was super rich, can I fly over Station 211, or would they be like, uh, do they um, on to or shoot me down or something? Um, uh, I'm not real sure. Um, there was a, there was a, 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 there is a moratorium on tourist air flights. Yeah. Um, a, a tourist plane in uh, about five or eight years ago crashed into Mount Erebus, which is the only active volcano in um, in uh, uh, Antarctica. It's it's uh, a little it's a, a few miles from McMurdo, and this this uh, tourist plane was trying to land at McMurdo, and it crashed in it into Mount Erebus, and they they banned tourist flights. I don't know if there's it. I don't think there's any civilian flying taking place in Antarctica right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not super rich anyway, so that won't be a problem for me. Yeah. But it, uh, there was a, um, uh, a U.S. Navy event uh, recently that uh, was reported to the world as uh, as one thing, and it may have been something else. Uh, the Na U.S. Navy may have been searching for, for, for 211 uh a couple of years back, uh, what it was is during Operation High Jump, uh, there there was one admitted air disaster in which one of the flying boats, uh, one of the PBYs, uh, crashed and burned, and half the half the crew were killed. I think it was like four guys were killed, uh, and they never recovered their bodies. So, so the, I think it was '03. The, the U.S. Navy went looking for the crash site and didn't find it. But did they go looking for the crash site, or were they really looking for for, for 211 and use use the crash as an excuse? Exactly. Yeah. And um, one of the other aspects of the book you get into pretty heavily, and like you said, you've done your own research into it, was uh, the the shadowy circumstances of Hitler's death. We're kind of bringing it back here now to. Uh, to the, the, the end of World War II, and um, and how mysterious Hitler's death was. Uh, nowadays, it's sort of uh, ex accepted as fact that he killed himself in the bunker. But back then, it was actually pretty controversial at the time. It was kind of like how Bin Laden is now, whether like is he alive or not. At least back then, it was sort of like they claimed he committed suicide, but there was never really any proof about it, and there never really has been. Correct. Right. Um, uh, the, you actually hit on, on one of my favorite pieces in the book because uh, George first drafted that, and then I went I went crazy and, and added uh, a great deal on that. And in the process of, of researching it, I found I found the Hitler's home address in Argentina and went, "Wow, this is so good!" Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, uh, in 2004, an Argentine published a book that is a tour guide to where the, where the Hitlers lived. And uh, he grew up in the town, and so he knows all these, uh, it, was, it was a town that had a bunch of, of Nazis, uh, 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 and most of them came via submarine. They came in the, in the Fuhrer convoy. Yeah. And so he grew up with these guys. Oh, and so uh, um, uh, he's, uh, he, he wrote a, a, a book uh, exposing where, where they lived, and it's got, you know, like diagrams and maps and, and, and everything, so you can actually go and check out the Hitler's house. Oh, wow. 
Um, so, um, uh, needless to say, we don't, don't believe that he died in the bunker. Uh, then there's the, the evidence of him dying in the bunker is all hearsay. It's all secondhand. The, uh, when, uh, uh, when we, uh, when, when, when Berlin fell, the, the Soviets, uh, took it over, and they did not allow the Allies, the British or the Americans, in for eight weeks. And by the time my eight weeks were up, the uh, the, the evidence in the in the bunker was was completely muddled. You know, there was yeah. no way you could do any sort of forensic study from that. There was a uh, U.S. You, you, you may may remember during uh, during the Gulf Wars, uh, uh, we had a uh, we were we had a guy who always knew where Saddam Hussein was, yeah. right? Because they're, they're you know they're trying to shoot him, yeah. which which is uh, which a lot of people thought was uh, was was playing dirty, but uh, we we had you know a whole branch of intelligence tracking where is Saddam this minute. Well, during World War II, we did that also. Uh, we had a, 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 a full bird colonel with a, with a, uh, um, a department uh, tracking where is Hitler right now. And he was one of the first people in the bunker. And he, um, uh, he said uh, that what the, what the Soviets said was bunk. <laughs> Uh, uh, the, you know, the, the evidence that, they pre that the Soviets presented was uh, uh, w uh, one of Hitler's hats and one of Ava's panties. And, uh, 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 you know, with, uh, these things had scorches on them. And supposedly, you know, this is what's left from, from them burning him. Yeah. Um, uh, later, the, the Soviets dragged out a, uh, uh, an autopsy that was clearly... Uh, false, because the autopsy was of a man with one testicle. Now, the whole bit about Hitler having one testicle was an urban legend. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the, it, 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 you know, he was he was a normal man, at, at least physically. Yeah. And um, uh, and so the the, the the Soviet autopsy is clearly nonsense. Um, uh, and so uh, I, I I pulled together a number of really good quotes. Including uh, one from the uh, U.S. Secretary of State, who uh, was at um, uh, at a conference with uh, with Stalin after the war, and he reported that you know, this is Secretary of State in in his uh, in his tell-all biography or, or autobiography. He says that at this at this dinner party, at one point Stalin gets up and comes over to him and clink clinks glasses with him, and he decides uh, to ask, and he asks Stalin, do you think Hitler died in the bunker? And Stalin says, no, he escaped. He, he went either to Spain or Argentina. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful stuff. And um, that sort of speaks to the idea that a lot of, these, a lot of the top-level Nazis probably escaped, and uh, at the time, I guess, Germany is just completely decimated, and, and Japan obviously was destroyed, so it was probably in the best interests of everybody at the time, I guess, to say, you know, to just go with the story, right? Right. At the time, most of America did not believe that he died in the bunker. Uh, uh, the opinion polls taken throughout the 50s were uh, the majority of Americans, like 75 to 85 percent, thought Hitler had escaped. Uh, and there were Hitler sightings, like like Elvis sightings, that, that went on for decades. Uh, and and uh, some of the Hitler sightings were hilarious, and some of them were, wow, that might actually have been him. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating, and the book is awesome for that stuff, too, especially uh, just tons of in-depth material on the potential of a, of a Hitler escape, which has really been fascinating. Uh, you know, as time goes by and a generational thing that uh, just becomes accepted as fact when more than likely it may not be. Yeah, a, that really is the is the nature of, of, of history, is, is most of what's accepted as being fact never happens. Yeah. So, uh, the spear ends up in, in Antarctica and possibly... Actually, when, we started, when I started telling you the story, I said, I think it's a hoax. I, I think Colonel Buchner was the victim of an incredibly elaborate hoax. Uh, I don't think there is... There is cre uh, there's a, it's credible that, that this happened. However, it is now a part of the, of the spear legend. You know, our book is Secrets of the Holy Lands, The Spear of Destiny in History and Legend. Yeah. What we tried to do is we tried to wrap, we tried to get every piece of the spear legend, regardless of how idiotic it is. I mean, we included the stuff about it being made by Tubal Cain. You know, we don't think it was made by Tubal Cain. That, that, we don't think Tubal Cain ever existed. But but it's, it's a part of the legend. And so what we did is we tried to assemble the entire spear legend and then, uh, and then uh, um, um, link it to what, facts, what historical facts we can to, to, to flesh out whether or not it, 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 it is or isn't true. Uh, we make it quite clear that from Dr. Feather's work, it's improbable that, uh, that that the spear in Vienna is was the, the spear that used uh, that, that was used in the crucifixion. In fact, we make it quite clear that it's improbable that any of the spears were uh, were used in the crucifixion. Uh, if uh, if if one of if the, the the one that has the greatest likelihood of being it is the one in the Vatican, and if, and the Catholic Church is saying well, we we don't know. Well, if they're not making any claims, it probably isn't it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if they really did have it, they would be screaming, "We got it!" Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, do you think that speaks to the idea that maybe it's the idea of the Holy Lance that it's that it's like if you believe that it's the Holy Lance, it gives you a false sense of of, um, of, you know, uh, unstoppableness. I don't know, I'm, I'm at a lot right. of words. Right, right, invincibility. Yes. You, you know, yeah, I, I believe that Hitler believed that he had the, the spear of destiny and that he believed that with it he was invincible. And for a couple of years there he was. Um, you know, the, the belief in the object is really, is really the object. Yeah. You know, and 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 there are there, one of the things we tackled in the book was the was the uh, uh, with these bizarre supernatural stories around it. And one of the one of the questions, one of the areas, I'm not really sure whether I managed to get this into the book or not. Since you just read the book, maybe you can help me out by saying whether you, whether you read it in there. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is, is I was thinking as I'm writing it is. This thing is on display. It's on public display for 1,200 years. Mm -hmm. it, it is believed by most of the people looking at it that it is magical, that it has powers. Yeah. Now, how much power does a human being have? Are, are we just meat or are we spirit? Is, is there mind over matter? Can, can the mind change matter? Can, it, can the mind have an effect on matter? If a million people looked at an object and thought it had magic, would that give it magic? Yeah, that's an interesting idea, yeah. 
Um, you know, even if it is a hoax upon a hoax upon a hoax, it still might do what it says it does. Exactly, yeah. Because like you said, if, it start, if it's been on display for 1,200 years, you know, it sort of it, it builds it, it sort of builds upon itself. Exactly. Yeah, the, uh, the belief, almost like how money is is really paper, but it's worth something uh, to everybody because they believe it's worth something. Right. You know, the uh, Federal Reserve notes are, are are just dirty pieces of paper. Exactly. But uh, but uh, you know, uh, everybody wants some. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, now. Uh, the whole events of Hitler ends up in, other than, like, uh, well, the whole events of Hitler ends up in, back in Vienna, where it had been before he got it. Um, do you ever see in, uh, a situation where the Lance, as, like, throughout human history, various folks have had the Lance, or claimed to have the Lance, and been these powerful leaders, and now we're living in modern times. Do you expect to see a time in the future, or can you envision that? Is someone's going to want that lance, or someone's going to show up claiming to have the other, like the real lance, you know, type of situation? You know, I... Or is it destined to become just a museum relic? Uh, I... The... The... The, the materialist modernist in me says it's just a museum relic. However, we, as, as we began this conversation, we know that at least 85% of Americans believe in angels. Yeah. You know, if there are people, you know, we know that 95% of Americans believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, this, this means that if, if, this means that somebody can play on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody can use that belief. Uh, even, and particularly if they possess that belief. You know that again. Belief is 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 the most powerful thing in human history. You know, humans have been busy whacking each other since the since the beginning of of history over over questions like whether or not God wears trousers. Exactly, and like, uh, well, how long was it in in the museum before Hitler got it? In the first uh, place, years. years? Uh, it was uh, it was in Vienna. Okay, it was it was spirited out of Nuremberg. Uh, in, uh, at the end of the 1700s, like 1798. Okay. Um, the, 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 uh, uh, Holy Roman Empire collapsed in 1806, and it was sold to the Habsburgs after that. So it's probably been in the Habsburg Museum. And we didn't, we didn't get a date on when it was actually installed, but we think it would have been around, uh, around 1807. Uh, plus or minus a year. Yeah, so like the, the, uh, that goes to what I was going to say is that like it was on display there for like 150 years, and I'm sure uh, at the beginning and, and, and then 400 years in in in, uh, in Nuremberg before that. Yep. Uh, Charlemagne had it. Charlemagne had it on display. Most of the people who have had it have had it on display. Yeah. Uh, so Charlemagne, in the year 800, has it on display in his castle in um, in Aachen, uh, and puts it on coins and uses it ceremonially. And many of the possessors of it had used it ceremonially. So there would be, you know, rallies with, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that would see this thing in a single moment. Yeah. And, and uh, like, it was on display for so long, and it kind of speaks to the idea that maybe back in uh, when World War II uh, was before it started and everything, it probably would have never dawned on people, much like it wouldn't dawn on people today, 
that some crazy nut is going to want to get that holy lance because he thinks it's going to help him rule the world. So it's entirely possible that, you know, in a hundred years from now, uh, war could break out in Europe again, and some crazy bastard's going to be like, I need that lance. And, you know, they'll be talking about it on the 24-hour news. Yeah, it, it's very possible. It's very possible. And then again, it's not impossible that the Buchner scenario has some truth in it. It is, it is quite that we, we have established that, that there was the Fuhrer convoy. At least three super subs went to Argentina and possibly Antarctica. That, uh, that, there, that, that it's not impossible... You know, there were very strong ties between Germany and Japan uh, during the, during the war. It, it, it's not impossible that a, a German uh, uh, that, that, that a, uh, a Japanese sword maker could have fabricated a, a replica that would have been good enough to have fooled the people in Vienna. It's unbloody likely, but it's not impossible. Yeah. And, and if if it, if 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 all of that is true, if it really did go to Antarctica and was rescued in 1979, it's a player on the world stage now. It is in a claimant's hands. It is being used by somebody for some purpose at this moment in time. It's not just in a museum or in a church in, in Armenia. Exactly, yeah. So that, there's also that entire possibility that, uh, like as you allude to, as the Fourth Reich, that there's some, that, and sort of the groundwork was laid with uh, Project Paperclip and the CIA being formed at NASA, that uh, the, the whole Nazi element may have gone underground, including the Holy Lands. Right, and, and there's a, an awful lot of evidence about the Nazi underground. Um, uh, it's uh, uh, one of the... One of the books I, I, I helped Jim Keith with was his very first book. Uh, as, I, as I said at the beginning, Jim and I were publishing a magazine called Dharma Combat, and we got wonderful stuff for Dharma, Dharma Combat, and we decided, uh, Jim decided that he wanted to, to go from it being a zine to being a real magazine. In fact, what he wanted to do is he wanted to bring it out in paperback form as a, uh, as a quarterly paperback. Yeah. And he got a hold of Adam Parfrey at Feral House, who just had a huge success with his apocalypse culture. And Adam didn't want to do it as a periodical. He wanted to do it as a book. And so we pulled together some great stuff from from Dharma Combat, and Adam had a few things in his files that he hadn't really found a home for. And we, we put them together as the book... Uh, Secret and Suppressed, uh, Banned Ideas and Hidden History. And one of the articles in it is, um, is an interview with a guy who claimed to have been basically the inspector general for a mafia-like organization of ex-Nazis that, that had been run by Otto Scorsese, who was uh, uh, Hitler's favorite commando. He was he he was uh, 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 he was to to the Nazis. He was what our Rambo is. You know, oh, you know he was he was viewed as being the greatest soldier alive, and and uh, was was used by by Hitler to to uh, as an example of, of what a what a great soldier should be. And, and uh, he was hugely popular and. Uh, Apparently his death was faked, and he went to Spain and operated uh, what he called the, the Nazi International, 
which was uh, um, a theoretically a, a business venture, but was in fact a, uh, a mafia-like operation that uh, that ensured uh, business went to former Nazis who were who were Nazis who had escaped uh, uh, to to very various places all over the world. Now, do you think, uh, just from your own perspective, that should some shadowy organization have the lance now? Do they need to let it be known that they do, or can they just use it for their own devious pursuits? Because obviously there's a lot of talk of conspiracy theory nowadays, and, and especially in this post-9-11 world and, and New World Order talk. Let's say the New World Order's got the lance. Do they have to let us know that they have it, or could, do you think they could just use it to take over the world? Um, just your I've, thoughts on it. You know, obviously, like, it's not going to be written in Time magazine or something. Yeah, I, 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 I doubt if, if, any, if, if the people who have the lands today, if it's not the one in, in Vienna, uh, if, if it is hidden somewhere in the world, uh, it's hidden for a reason. And, uh, they, they, they would only bring it out if it had propaganda value to bring it out. Yeah. It's not like uh, they have it and they're going about their plans to take over the world and well, we uh, we examine this question at the end of the book. We we try to make some guesses as to where the lance is now, and uh, George came up with a with a pretty good guess. So that's that's what went in the book. Is uh, 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 Kurt Waldheim was uh, the former prime minister of Austria and former secretary general of the United Nations, mm-hmm. and he was. Um, Elevated to the position of Secretary General of the United Nations uh, shortly after the lance was was rescued from Antarctica, so that may have may have played a role. And if it went to him, that may be why he was elevated to you know king king of the world there for a minute. Yeah, uh, I think it's hilarious that he he lives in Vienna, a few blocks from the uh, the royal palace where the where the the the, the uh, the spear is on display, so the spear may actually live a few blocks from itself. Exactly. In the introduction, you talk a lot about Jim Keith. I didn't realize, uh, obviously I didn't realize this until I read the introduction, that you knew him since high school, and like you were telling these stories about uh, you guys were teenagers working on this stuff. What was that like growing up with Jim Keith, because he's a pretty well-known name uh, in the esoteric community, and a very well-known conspiracy writer. Obviously he passed away, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. But you sound like you were really good friends with the guy. So tell me about Jim Keith, so we can keep his memory alive. Yeah, Jim was my best friend from uh, from 1966 to 1999. Um, uh, one day in uh, uh, about the third or fourth day of the school year, I'm in PE class and I hear these two guys talking about Lord of the Rings, and I just finished reading it. Uh, uh, and I walked over and butted into their conversation. <laughs> And um, it turned out they had uh, uh, they were uh, members of a local science fiction club. In fact, founders of the local science fiction club, and invited me to to join. This was the Valley Science Fiction Association, the Valsa, and uh, I, I ended up uh, hanging out with them practically every day of my life throughout my uh, from 16 to 22. Um, we did uh, uh, Jim and I did a number of scenes together. Uh, Jim Jim was uh, Jim had a rather broad swath. Jim was very tall, very handsome, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan. Uh, he was a poet, very uh, 
had women lined up to be his girlfriends. I mean, he he, uh, he had an entourage of women hanging off of him. <laughs> Um, of course, I was always very jealous of that. I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of it this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, every time I got a girlfriend, she ended up with him. Oh, man. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then got passed on. <laughs> oh, jeez. And were you guys, like you say, you guys were interested in sci-fi, and then it sort of just uh, grew into the esoteric research that you guys became well-known for, right? Well, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on there. I had, um, uh, we... Gosh, gosh, I'm you know I'm remembering these strange things. Um, 1966, I uh, or 67, I'd known Jim for I don't know six months or so, uh, and Jim had heard about the I Ching, and um, his library card. Uh, he, he he was not very good at taking library books back. And owned a owed a mountain of fines, so he asked me to go to the library and check it out for him. Yeah. And we both really got into the I Ching, uh, and the Eastern religions in a variety of ways. Uh, we were always, uh, you know, we were, we were heads, um, uh, you know, we were part of the psychedelic 60s. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, there's a lot of, you know, I was very taken with, with Zen Buddhism um, and um, uh, the Tao Te Ching and so on. Mm -hmm. I actually, uh, in in uh, the early 70s, I ran for county commissioner on a Taoist ticket. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Jim and I, from from... From high school on, were were very much interested in in the esoteric, not so much conspiracy, but um, uh, alternative religions. You know, uh, and um, uh, one of the zines we were doing, uh, which was oddly enough, we never did figure out a title for it, so it was simply untitled. Uh, it got it got huge critical acclaim. It was it was you know, generally reviewed as the best zine of that year awesome. out of L.A. Oh wow! And um, one of the one of the people one of the things we published one of the articles we published was something. Uh, now, in science fiction fandom, has a lot of connections to Scientology. Uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard uh, was a science fiction writer and a member of the Lossless, which we were also members of the Lossless, the Lossless, the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, the oldest science fiction club in the country. It's met every Thursday night since 1936. Oh, wow. Has a, uh, has a clubhouse in, in North Hollywood right now. And so um, I knew a lot of people who knew L. Ron Hubbard, and I knew a lot of people who had been in, in and out of Dianetics and Scientology. Um, uh, Jim uh, and I were doing this, this untitled scene, and we got an article from an old-time Dianeticist, uh, uh, or before it was Scientology, it was Di Dianetics. Yeah. And this guy gave us an article with the title Nonfiction, and it was, it was recalls from the last three billion years of his past lives, and the Dianetic techniques used to help him remember them. Yeah. And, um, Jim just flipped over this. Shortly after that, um, uh, we, we, we ended up splitting up. We were in Pomona, California, and um, uh, his, his parents moved to Kansas City, and 
neither of us had jobs. Uh, we were we're both in our early twenties. Neither of us had jobs. We're we're you know mooching off our parents. Um, he uh, he goes to Kansas City with his parents. Uh, meanwhile, uh, another another member of the crew, Jim Schumacher, uh, and his uh, uh, girlfriend uh, decide they're going to get get out of L.A. And I end up moving with them to Klamath Falls, Oregon. And uh, I don't see Jim for a couple of years. And then he shows up on my doorstep one day, and again, he's, uh, he's very emotional, and he's crying. He's crying continuously because his, his love affair just went south on him. And it turns out that he had worked for the, the, uh, the Church of Scientology in uh, Kansas City, uh, where he had learned that if you uh, uh, work for the, for the church, you get free training and, and counseling. So uh, he had signed up for the, for, the, for the free stuff and was working for them and then had gone to Riverside, California and, and worked for the church there. Yeah. And that's when his, uh, he fell in love with this girl and then she broke his heart and he didn't know what to do, so he, he came and mooched off me. <laughs> um, and uh, this was summer of 75. Um, no, I take that back. He showed up just before Thanksgiving '74. Okay. Um, I'm working as a as a busboy, and and I'm sick of working as a busboy. I I throw in the towel on that, and I don't have a job. He doesn't have a job. Uh, I, uh, summer '75. I go down to San Francisco. Now he's having me read. He's telling me every day. He's telling me how wonderful Scientology is, and all the wins and gains he's got, and how perfect the tech is, and yada yada. Yeah. So I go down to San Francisco, summer of '75, and um, uh, to attend a science fiction convention, and then and I'm staying at a friend's house, uh, and he's one of the one of the the Valsler crew who who had left Pomona and moved to San Francisco. He's living in in the, in Noe Valley, if you know where that is, uh, which is a little off off from the Hay, and um, I'm staying on on his couch and. Uh, I decide before going back to Klamath Falls to just check out Scientology, see what it looks like. Yeah. Somehow I ended up becoming a staff member and worked at, at the Church of Scientology San Francisco for three months, which uh, annoyed my friend because I'm camped out on his couch. Yeah, yeah. Um, that came to an end, and I went back to, uh, to Klamath Falls, and um, uh, by this time I'm a true believer. Jim's a true believer. And um, I'm in Klamath Falls for a couple of months, and we're not. Uh, we did another scene together called Skyline Klamath Falls. And one night during a, a blizzard, snowstorm, we're waiting for our printer to show up. He never shows up, and I say, "Well, you know, I've had enough of this." And I joined the monastic order of Scientology called the Sea Org. And um, a couple of days later, I'm back. I'm in L.A. wearing a wearing a mock uh, naval outfit and and working in in a in a, a Scientology facility. Uh, Jim uh, uh, stayed in Klamath Falls for a number of years, and then his um, uh, uh, he went down to Reno to visit his parents, and while he's there, his father had a heart attack, gets a triple bypass, and never really quite recovers from it. And Jim finds himself now living in, in, in Reno uh, uh, as a... a at babysitting his father. Yeah, I uh, I escaped from Scientology and and uh, uh, I'm back back uh, back at my parents' house, which you know every day is oh I got to get out of here. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, I, I work for a couple of years as a travel agent, and then uh, uh, I'm using all my free travel benefits to go up to Reno to go over writing projects with Jim, because we're now really serious about becoming writers. Yeah. This, is, this is the mid-'80s, and we have, you know, just away a decade on Scientology yeah. and, and bad love affairs. And uh, uh, I uh, finally I decided, you know, I'm wasting my travel benefits. I'll just move there. And I moved to Reno uh, just about 20 years ago. And Jim and I really tried hard to, to be fiction writers. We cranked out a great deal of fiction. Uh, some of it sold. Most of it didn't. Uh, I got into this uh, ghostwriting gig and, and did a did a, a lot of ghostwriting that, that didn't make much money or get me any any press, and that was sort of depressing. And then um, and then we did uh, the combat, and and that got got us into uh, a very unusual scene. We 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 discovered the Patriot movement, and um, um, the uh, that that. There was a, a number of people out there who realized that there was a coming world government and it was not going to be pretty. Yeah. And so we, we end up working with those folks. And there's also this whole, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the new age is getting weirder by, by the day. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we're publishing a new age magazine in which we're going, you know, this stuff is, is this is, this is not good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's kind of, where we were, and then, um, as I said, uh, uh, Jim's first book was uh, Secret and Suppressed, which which was a which grew out of Dharma Combat. His second book, also, uh, we had published something in Dharma Combat called the, the Skeleton Key to the Gemstone File, and this is wild, wild stuff. It has been it's been circulating Samus dot for twenty years or more before we published it. Apparently, the, the story is. There was a guy named Bruce Roberts who was a scientist, and he developed the technology for making artificial rubies, uh, which are necessary for lasers and a number of other things. Yeah. And he takes his technology for making artificial rubies to uh, uh, Howard Hughes, mm-hmm. and Howard Hughes stole it. Oh, this, this really pissed off uh, Bruce Roberts, so he then starts making artificial rubies and selling them as real ones. Uh, and using that to, to raise money to find stuff about Howard Hughes. <laughs> and and uh, uh, he writes his mom, uh, like, daily letters of what he finds. So eventually he ends up with, like, like a thousand letters yeah. that, that are all the stuff he's found. And there's a, a, a woman on the California coast who's been... Uh, looking into the JFK hit and the Nazi connections to it, uh, and doing a, a little radio show called Conspiracy Corner named May Brussel. Mm-hmm. And May Brussel is like the queen of conspiracy. Yeah. And, and he shows up with these thousand letters, uh, of, uh, that, that, that what he's found is, uh, that, that Howard Hughes was kidnapped and murdered by Aristotle Onassis, who was who 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 was the the guy who actioned who paid for the JFK hit? Uh, uh, the, the day he shows up at May Brussels Place, it just happened that there was a 
reporter from Playgirl magazine named Stephanie Caruana visiting and interviewing May at the time. She offers to read the thousand letters and put them in and, and make a, a digest of what's in them. Yeah. So this becomes known as the uh, 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 his letters are the, are the gemstone file. And so her di uh, her digest of it, her abstract of it, is the skeleton key to the gemstone file. Yeah. So we published this in Dharma Combat, and it turns out there's this guy named Ron Bonds who has been collecting every known copy of it, and he gets in contact with Jim Keith. They they uh, they they bounce some ideas off of each other, and they decide to produce a book. Uh, uh, Ron creates a publishing company, which he calls Illuminate, uh, uh, and uh, Jim writes the first book for Illuminate, which is The Gemstone File, which is, uh, uh, Jim doesn't really write the book so much as edit it. It's a, a collection of, uh, it's an anthology of articles written around uh, either uh, um, supporting or trashing The Gemstone File. And he comes in contact with a lot of the of the key movers and shakers in the in the conspiracy movement. Ron Bonds creates a, a, a holds a, a convention in uh, he lives in the Atlanta area and he holds a, a a science fiction goth conspiracy convention. Yeah. And, and apparently it was it was it was what really made Jim's career going there and meeting in the flesh some of the some of the major shakers in the movement, yeah. and and out of that came his uh, his career, and um, I, I to this day I kick myself for for not having gone. <laughs> I bet. And you stayed close to him up until his uh, untimely death. Well, that must have been quite a shock. It was a surprise. It wasn't really like it was an accidental. Uh, I wouldn't even say accident. It was sort of like. A fluke death, right? Yeah, it was it was very odd. Um, uh, my my co-author on Secrets of the Holy Lands is George Picard, yeah. whose uh, whose previous book was uh, was uh, uh, Liquid Conspiracy, and George and Jim went to Burning Man together. Burning Man is the world's greatest art festival. Yes. It's uh, it it's held for a full uh, held held for for eight days in the Nevada desert, about 120 miles north of Reno, in a place called uh, uh, the Black Rock Desert, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, there were probably about 28,000 people there the year that that Jim and George went, and that had been that was George's second time to go and Jim's first. And at, at Burning Man, it's not like a rock concert. It's not one big stage and everybody sits looking at it. It is, it is a full-on city. It is the seventh largest city in the state with hundreds of miles of streets and uh, 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 major art installations and major art events taking place continuously. At any given year, there are one or two hundred stages. Oh, wow. But, they were they were on a stage that was set up for a, a, a band who called themselves uh, the Black Rock Rangers, and um, so at some point in the middle of the night, around one two in the morning, they realized that they were the only people sitting on the stage. That everybody had gotten off and left and left them there, and they'd been so busy talking to each other they hadn't noticed it. So they decided, well, you know, let's go somewhere where there's some action. And uh, George jumped down and. Um, uh, took a couple of steps and then turned to say something to Jim and realized that Jim wasn't there. And he looked back and Jim is in a pile at the foot of the stage. And it had only been about three or four feet high. And 
Jim Jim was a very large guy. He was like six four, six six. Oh wow. Uh, he he was he wasn't fat, but he was overweight. Uh, I would guess he was pushing three hundred pounds, probably two eighty, two ninety, something like that. So he's stocky. Yeah, he was. His calves were bigger than my head. Oh wow. And he went down hard. I mean, they had been they'd been drinking all day for a couple of days, and um, he. Uh, he uh, didn't know his own strength. Went down, and he—they couldn't tell if they had, if what had happened exactly. And they went to to the, the medical tent, and the guys at the med tent couldn't tell whether it was broken or sprained. And Jim is just—you know—it's—it's it's, it's, it's nothing. I'll—I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll get over it. <laughs> and so George takes Jim home, and so it's—you know—it's a three-four hour drive back, and they—they they get in about sunrise, and. It took Jim 45 minutes to crawl from the car to his living room. Oh, jeez. Now, this is, I think, Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, he, Jim, Jim was the sort of person who simply refused to fix anything. Yeah. When, when he died, he lived in a mobile home. Neither of the doors actually closed. <laughs> a third of the windows were broken out. The, the shelves in the kitchen didn't hold anything because they all collapsed. You know, I mean, the, 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 the uh, uh, Jim simply refused to fix anything. If it broke, it, he just left it. So he broke himself, and he refused to fix it. He uh, he he or he had two daughters. I believe they were eleven and thirteen at the time, and he ordered them not to call. Uh, the, 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 the hospital, not, not to call the ambulance that, that he'll get over it. Well, the girls didn't know what to do, so, so they called Jim's sister, Aunt Kathy. Yeah. And so, so Aunt Kathy drives down from Portland. Oh, she wow. gets there about Tuesday. Takes one look at him and says, you're going to the hospital, buddy. Because he hadn't moved off the floor for, for, for two days. Yeah. So, so they, they get him into an ambulance, and by, he gets to the hospital either Tuesday or Wednesday, I forget which. Uh, he gets there, and yeah, it must have been Wednesday he gets to, to the hospital. He gets there, and of course, having not moved, um, you know, with a, with a broken leg, he's, um, his blood chemistry is shot, and they've got to stabilize him. So they keep him overnight, uh, and the last non-medical person to see him alive saw him about 2 o'clock Thursday afternoon. And she said that when she came into his room, there were two massage therapists giving him physical therapy. Yeah. Now, he goes into the OR, and apparently he makes it out of the OR, goes into ICU, and dies from a blood clot to the lung. Yeah. Now, that physical therapy ensured that if there were any blood clots, they would get loose and go somewhere nasty. So I, I put his death down to, at the least, uh, medical malpractice. Yeah, yeah. So you think, uh, so you're not, um, you're not like a big subscriber to that he was murdered type of thing. You think he was just well, probably by, like, uh, just a lousy, lousy uh, medical work? Yeah, uh, that hospital is infamous for lousy medical work. Oh, really? Um, um, uh, here's a... a uh, a, a good example of this is you uh, is uh, Jason May. You may know Jason May. He acquired the, the RFK archive uh, from the LAPD after uh, when uh, when Robert Kennedy was shot at uh, at the Ambassador Hotel. The the LAPD collected this immense amount of evidence, like 
there was like 10,000 documents in, yeah. the, in the LAPD file, and Jason May got it. So Jason May is a, is a friend of Jim's and a friend of Jim's lawyer. Jim's lawyer, uh, for a short while, was also Sirhan Sirhan's lawyer. Oh, wow. Um, uh, uh, it's pretty clear that Sirhan Sirhan was a mind control victim and that uh, he was not the shooter. In fact, he apparently had a starter's gun firing blanks huh. um, uh, and was clearly in a hypnotic state. He was clearly not in possession of his own mind when, when they, at, at the, during the event. Yeah. So um, uh, Jason May, uh, two weeks after Jim dies in Washoe Medical Center, mm -hmm. checks into Washoe Medical Center to get some elective surgery. And he's lying there in the bed, and the orderlies come in and they start prepping him for the, for, for the, for the surgery, yeah. but they're prepping the wrong side of his body. Oh, and he demands to know what's going on. Well, he just happens to look at the at the wrist tag. You know, you know, when you go to the hospital, they give they put a tag around your wrist to you know, identify who you are. Yeah. He looks at it and it says he's Edna May. Oh, they're prepping him for some woman's surgery. At that point, he realized, you know, Jim just died here a couple weeks ago. They're going to do the same thing to me. He got up, put his clothes on, walked out of the hospital. Yeah. So it's a pretty lousy hospital. Yeah, I've, 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 I've gone there a few times, but never willingly. <laughs> there you go. All right. And um, obviously it was a big loss to lose Jim Keith in the esoteric community because he was uh, a very good researcher and, and, and author and everything. So, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about that. And I didn't get into the field really until after he had passed. So it's, uh, it's too bad for me because I never got a chance really to, to uh, find out more about him and meet him as I'm meeting so many other people now in the field. You know, one of the great losses is that he insisted that he had figured out this, the secret to baffle me. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Templar code uh, uh, word that everybody's been trying to figure out what the heck it means for the last 1,200 years. Yeah. He was convinced that he had figured it out. And he, he wouldn't tell anybody because he was going to write a book on it. Oh, man. And he took that to the grave with him. Yeah. <laughs> He never gave you any clues? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, every time I asked him about it, he'd say things like, that would be telling. <laughs> now, did you and him grow up in L.A.? Because uh, you said you guys ended up there. Did you, you guys grow up in L.A., or where did you guys go to high school? Uh, well, it was Pomona. Okay, uh, Pomona so. is about 40 miles due east of downtown Los Angeles. Nice. Um, he was, I believe he was born in Kansas City. Uh, I was born in Pomona. Uh, shortly after birth, I, uh, I was moved out of town. My, my parents, uh, I w I'm adopted. And the, the papers were signed on me three days before I was born. And as soon as I was ready to leave the hospital, uh, my parents took me to where they lived, which was in Paris, California, P-E-R-R-I-S. Mm -hmm. uh, and I lived in Paris for the first five years and then um, uh, sort of drifted around in Southern California and oddly enough ended up back in Pomona for high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's where you, got, that's where you met Jim Keith. That's where I met Jim Keith, who had, uh, he had, he had grown most of his grade school uh, years were spent in um, in the Silver Lake district in downtown LA. Oh, okay. And yeah. then uh, for junior high, he moved out to Pomona, where he met uh, Jim Schumacher and Russell Brian Brooker, and we're all still friends. Uh, um, uh, I ta I talk to uh, to both of those guys uh, at least once a month, 
and we have a we, we have a little online club and and uh, and this and two discussion groups because the, the the one part of the club is feuding with the other, which is which is how it's always been. I mean, the the the, 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 the Valsa always was one part of the club feuding with the other, and and the and, and, and the, the feud never went away. But just who who was feuding with who changed. <laughs> That sounds like much much of uh, the esoteric community in general uh, always feuding. Yeah. Um, well, wow, what's what's next for you um, now that the the Lance book has been out? Uh, what what can we expect from you in the in the future? Well, I'm working on uh, chemtrails, Hark, and weather warfare. The military's plan to draft Mother Nature. Yeah. And while I'm working on it, I have a I have a pretty pretty sweet deal from my publisher. Uh, my publisher owns uh, owns most of the town of Kempton, Illinois. Um, uh, he, as well as his house, and he owns several other houses, and two houses are, are, are open as, uh, as guest houses. One is the World Explorers Club Clubhouse, and the other is the Knight's Armory Bed and Breakfast. And I'm staying in the Knight's Armory Bed and Breakfast. So I have, I'm living rent-free while I'm writing the book, but I'm working at the, at the, at the bookstore. The Adventures Unlimited Press has a, a bookstore and, uh, and fulfillment center and warehouse here in town. Also has a bar and grill. So uh, I spend, uh, I spend six or eight hours a day answering phones and, and uh, picking orders, and then, uh, then I spend a couple hours a day writing the book. Oh, that's nice. That's a good deal. Um, now, when do you expect that book will be rolling out? Sometime like this um, year, next year, you think? Um, we are holding a conference here on May 6th, and my plan is to ha hand the final manuscript to the publisher on May 5th. So uh, I'm going to give him the manuscript, and then I'm going to speak at the conference, and then I'm going to pack my bags. Nice. What's, uh, what, what information do you have about that conference? Because I haven't heard anything about it. That might be something worth checking out. Well, it's uh, May 6th. Actually, that's when the, when the talking is going to be. It's going to be a three-day gala, May 5, 6, and 7. And, uh, Friday the 5th, we're going to have wine and cheese reception and, uh, and, and all-night drinking. And then uh, Saturday, we'll, uh, we'll have a number of speakers. Uh, that will, they will include uh, David Hector Childress uh, speaking on uh, Moo Atlantis and Power Systems of the Gods. Um, uh, Christopher Dunn, who uh, who wrote uh, 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 the Giza Power Plant, uh, where he he has made the great breakthrough in Egyptology. He's, he has conclusively proven that the Great Pyramid is not a burial mound, but is in fact was in fact a machine. And so his topic is going to be evidence of ancient machining. Um, and a number of other uh, speakers are going to be like uh, William Henry yep. uh, uh, speaking on Cloak of the Illuminati and myself speaking on uh, Secrets of the Holy Lands. Uh, all, all in all, I think there's seven speakers. Awesome. And um, it'll go late into the evening and we'll have a, have a banquet. Um, and then... Uh, Sunday is sort of the, your basic dead dog party of, of people hanging out and and getting autographs and you know, recovering from the hangovers. Yeah, yeah, and working and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And, and again, that's uh, that's in Kempton, Illinois. Kempton is about a two-hour drive south of Chicago's O'Hare Airport, 
about halfway between Chicago and Champaign, and it's just about dead center between I-55 and I-57. Okay, now, uh, is there a web address for that, or could they do a Google search for the name of the, co of the conference, or how, what's the best way to uh, find information? Well, through your website, you think? Yeah, it's it's on um, it's on the World Explorers Club uh, website, which is www.wexclub w e x c l u b dot com. Okay, and uh, let's uh, let's give out your websites here. It's jerryesmith dot com, and that's j e r y e smith dot com s m i t h. Uh, and for information about the book, it's spearbook dot com. Correct. That is correct. Uh, Spearbook is a, is a I, I, it's got some technical name, but it, 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 it's not really a website that will bounce you over to the website because the real name for the website is secretsoftheholylands.com, and that's just the front page. And then to go to the main page, it's you know, secretsoftheholylands.com slash squiggle things and weird, you know, equals page one, you know, nonsense. Uh, nobody can remember that. I can't remember that. So just spearbook.com. You don't even need the darn W's. Just spearbook.com and it'll take you there. Awesome. And that's S-P-E-A-R-B-O-O-K.com. And if you want to just pick up the book, if you want to uh, just call the number, the number is 1-800-718-4514. And that's the Un Adventures Unlimited press order line. Uh, yeah, right? Righto. Uh, 1-800-718-4514. Uh, call during normal business hours, and uh, uh, Beth and Mary will be happy to take your order. Yes, and tell them you heard uh, the interview on Banal America Audio. Now, uh, to get an autograph copy, go oh, to nice. Spearbook. At spearbook.com, you can get a copy autographed by both the authors. Uh, to get a, uh, if you if you call Beth or Mary at Adventures Unlimited Press at one eight hundred seven one eight four five one four, if you tell them you want an autograph copy, I will autograph one to you. But it won't have George's autograph. You got to go to Spearbook.com to get George's autograph. Okay. Or or you can just go to Amazon.com or you can go to BarnesandNoble.com or you can go to your local Barnes and Noble. It's in all major bookstores. Awesome. And uh, you can get it uh, at at Amazon.com for a discount, but no autographs. <laughs> okay. And uh, once again, we'll give the number out again one time. Eight hundred one eight hundred seven one eight. Four five one four, and call during business hours. Don't call at two in the morning. Cause, uh, well, you, you can, but you'll get an answering machine. And I know most people are a little queasy about leaving their their credit card numbers on an answering machine. Yeah, exactly. So call during business lines. You can get the so you can order the book. Check out the book. I really enjoyed it. It's awesome. It covers the Holy Lance all through history, where it's turned up, who's claimed to have it, who's had it, and all the various adventures they've had with the Lance, and then also really in-depth, Hitler and his his role with the Lance, and what may have happened to the Lance after that. A lot of great stuff on the Antarctic, rumors of uh, Nazi bases there, and a lot of awesome stuff about Hitler and potential uh, scenarios post-World War II with Hitler. It just covers tons of stuff. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you very much, Jerry, for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to thank Jerry E. Smith for sitting down and talking to us for so long. Really appreciate it. Give us tons of information. I want to thank Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BanalofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. And, of course, I want to thank all you great listeners out there who have discovered Banal of America Audio, who have been checking out the interviews 
I hope you enjoy what you hear, and I hope you come back for more. Check out BenAllOfAmerica.com for more esoteric ramblings of the finest sort. We've got columns from Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee, weekly columns from me, feature articles. If you're a longtime listener of Ben All of America Audio and you want to help out, we have a PayPal button at BenAllOfAmerica.com. Click the PayPal button, throw some change in the bucket, give us a donation. It'll help offset the costs of the audio series. Next week, the guest to be announced. I have somebody lined up for the end of the week, but it's not 100%. We don't have it taped yet, so I don't want to announce anybody for sure. But it looks like we should have a show. If not, we will take the week off, but check back at banalofamerica.com on Friday or Saturday to find out more. And you'll know then if we will have a guest or not, or if we'll have a show or not. We should have a more definitive schedule coming out soon for the rest of the season. We expect to wrap up Ben All of America Audio Season 1 towards the end of May. So we've got about two and a half months left of esoteric audio at its finest. Then we'll be taking some time off to roll out Season 2. But that's a long way off. For now... I'm Tim Benall, signing off.